Sometimes it's easy to forget that God has given us a hymn book. It's the book of Psalms. Uh, hard for us to sing because they usually don't rhyme, but this is one of those that's been taken and fashioned in a way that God's people could sing that. Well, welcome this morning. If you're visiting especially, you are our special guest, and we pray the love of Christ will grip you, and it will be evident in our hearts and in our actions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, kind of reverse the order of the uh, the bulletin this morning as we begin. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for worship. There is a part of me, and I'm sure a part of our friends gathered here, that thinks when we're able to miss worship or even skip, that we're, we're Lord, actually benefiting. Lord, it's, it's the opposite. This is a blessing. It's a privilege. We thank you that you, Lord, uh, command us to worship. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't. But we thank You, Lord, that because of the Gospel and the love that You, you do uh, warm in our hearts, we're compelled. We come to honor You. We come to thank You. We come to, Lord, rest again in the privileges of knowing You. Uh, to remember, Lord, the goodness of Your mercy and the, the power of Your grace, Lord, and the truth of Your justice. And in so doing, Lord, we're reminded of our great need of a, a Savior. A great need of someone to come and rescue us. And You have, Lord, bent Your will and Your, your deserts and privilege to serve even us. And Lord, that is overwhelming to consider. We pray, Lord, that You would affect us with the Gospel in such a way that our hearts would flow with the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, and not the fruit of the flesh. We see that all around us, and Lord, we confess we see it in us. Anger, wrath, malice, jealousy, envy, greed. We pray, Lord, that You would turn our hearts to Christ and it would nourish us to love and joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, and goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We pray, Lord, that that experience would blossom out in our lives at home, and at work, and at school, and yes, even on social media. We praise You, Lord, that You've blessed us with a church family, and we pray for her. We ask for those unable to gather with us. For whatever reason, You would bless them. And we who've gathered, Lord, nourish us this morning. Make us, Lord, Your precious people. Once again, in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> We've been looking at the blessed life. That's a word that gets maybe overused or misused in our culture. And we spoke about that last week. If you weren't here, Psalm 1, Blessed Formation. And what we found out is the blessed person, if you really want to know how the Bible defines blessed, it begins with not trusting yourself, but actually fleeing the conventions of our own thoughts and minds and opinions and preferences, and fleeing to the safe, secure island of God's Word. So, if you were looking for a reason uh, to study God's Word, that's it. Without God's Word, you become what the Bible calls like chaff, rootless. But in God's Word, like a tree blossoming and rooted and fruitful and useful, 
What a wonderful portrait it is. This week we're looking at another practice of the blessed life, confession. Let me give you some backdrop to Psalm 32. It has been a favorite of Christians for centuries. It is St. Augustine's favorite. He was a sex addict in every way. And this was the psalm that he came to and nourished himself in time and again. Psalm 32 was composed by David. By David and about King David. Let me tell you a little bit about David, and this was what makes this psalm just resonate, and it's meant to, well, encourage God's people. King David was um, a national icon. He would have been a type of leader whose portrait hung on the walls of people's houses. He was loved and admired and respected. What's interesting about David is he had no business being king. But God purposefully chose him to prove something to us. And it's that a man's worth and value and dignity and power and honor do not lie in that man. Not in his family history. David didn't come from the greatest family. Not from his smarts. Not from his skills. He was the weakest and youngest. Not, not from his savvy or success. All of the things that you and I say make a man, God puts David in front of us and says, nope. Purposefully. David became something of a, a hero in every sense. He was a working class hero, and we like that. That means he came from the poorest family and was put in the highest position. We love those stories. That means everybody at every level of society could connect with someone like David. He was a a hero of the working class. He was a patriotic hero. He is the one that defeated this pesky national rival with a stone Again, proof of God's work, not his skill. He was a religious hero. David managed to bring back the very symbol of God's presence. It was like the thing. You know, we would resonate with the Marines at Iwo Jima and rally around such moments like the flag at 9-11, ground zero. This all the more because the Ark of the Covenant was the very presence of God. People, He was also because of those things a cultural hero. There are actually evidence in the book of Samuel that people sang songs about David. He was the subject of the top 40 hits. Cultural hero, religious hero, patriotic hero, working class hero. One day David was bored. And there on the computer screen of his life, clickbait popped up, an image of a beautiful woman that he just glanced at. But his look suddenly turned to a linger. And then that linger turned into lust. And then that lust and lingering look turned into a lapse, a fall. And David used his position as king to actually empower himself over this woman named Bathsheba to bring her to himself. And there he, in a sense, forced himself upon her. No doubt David, like all of us, would have rationalized his acts. I I work so hard, I kind of deserve this break. 
The problem was Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant with David's child and she was married to another man, a foreigner. So you could even justify, well, it's a foreigner's wife, except this foreigner was one of David's most loyal and respected soldiers. He was a Hittite named Uriah. And David had to now balance this reality. If this gets found out, what then? This could be plucked right out of our newspapers. Right out of days of our lives. David, surely being the hero he is, would just own his mistake. Admit it. Come clean. Seek forgiveness. And everyone's healed. He didn't do that. Neither would any of us. That's not our instinct. So David begins to scheme ways to cover up this tremendous scandal. And so the first one is to, well, do it with benevolence. He says, you know, I'm going to, I have the authority to allow Uriah to come home for R&R, a little rest and relaxation from the front of war, the front of battle. And if things go according to my plan, he will uh, go home and he and his wife will enjoy the great gift of marriage and then he'll come to think that that baby's his. The problem is Uriah stuns David and refuses to go home, but rather shows his loyalty by camping out at David's house as security detail. Scheme one doesn't work. Scheme two, David calls in his commanders of the army and says, okay, we can't get him this way. Here's what's going to happen. At the next battle, command all your men except Uriah. Don't tell him. When they get up against the enemy, I want you to get right up to the front. Charge their spears and then stop. Step back. And that will leave him exposed. And that's what happened. And he was killed. You can imagine the reasoning in David's mind. Well, you know, he's going to get a hero's honor. They'll have a flag to bury with him. His wife will get pension. And David went so far to think, you know what? I'll be so kind that I'll bring her into my home and everyone will think, what a generous man for helping out that poor widow. That was the plan. It worked. <laughs> it worked. A year passes. Business is back to normal. He's commanding people and administering and signing documents and so forth. Life is pretty normal. The home is pretty normal. But here's the catch. God loved David so much. Hear that. He loved him so much that he sent a prophet named Nathan, uh, an investigative reporter, who would go to David and say, I know your secret. The jig is up. Nathan knew, though, David had hidden his sin so long that his heart was pre-hardened. So he's just not going to receive that kind of direct disclosure. So he decided to appeal to David's emotion. He told a story that a, a kid who grew up poor would resonate with. And so he, he said, I heard a story about a very incredibly powerful wealthy landowner who had more livestock than he could count or keep up with. 
And one day, people came to visit him. And as visitors often uh, uh, get to experience at their, their home, their host's house, they had a barbecue. But rather than sending one of his field hands to pick one of the uncountable number of livestock he had, he sent his servant to go find the poorest of old men in a remote village who had one little sheep that was a special sheep that he had grown up with and his kids named and they, he actually walked around the house like a pet. And he took that sheep and he sacrificed it, killed it, barbecued it for his guests in spite of having all of that wealth. David stood up enraged. As the king, he knew he could do something about that. And so he, he got up and he shouted and proclaimed to everyone in hearing, Who did this? He deserves to die. And Nathan, with that arrow of God's truth, said, It's you. You are the man. Literally the most liberating moment of David's life. Never had he been freer to worship God than the moment he was absolutely exposed for the fraud that he was. Glory, hallelujah. I, I wonder in my imagination how David would have handled that and how we as his public would have handled that. Because that's the kind of thing that, well, it happens a lot in Brookhaven. It's the kind of thing that happens a lot in churches, even our church. I think about this leader of a country and thinking about our own context. Imagine how many reporters would suddenly show up at the palace outside with their vans and satellites and cameras. And every day for weeks on end, people that have never met David, parsing him and analyzing his choices, and they point out all the mistakes he's made along the way. You know the game. You've seen it before. You can imagine how Facebook would create memes that mock David and his choice. He would become the laughing stock of Judah. Of course, people like me, the preachers would be posting Bible verses Reminding everyone how evil adultery and murder and privilege and injustice is. We would, we would, tell, we would teach him something. Women's rights organizations in support of Bathsheba would rail on David. The, the Hittite Anti-Defamation League would be nailing David left and right. And then you can imagine what it's like going home maybe. What do you say to your kids? What does the dinner table look like? The silent treatment from the children who once loved to come sit in daddy's lap. What about his wife? How would you deal with that? How, how do God's people deal and recover from painful, tragic, haunting sin? Well, Psalm 32 is David's press conference. And he stands in front of the nation and he says, I'm going to tell you what I have learned. And I want you to notice where he begins. Blessed. Huh? 
blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For hear me, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, speaking to God, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I, therefore, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Be glad in the covenant, Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Man, is there a lot we can't do it all. So let me just kind of sift out uh, the, pre- the magic preacher number of three things. Three words. The words cover, the word confess, and the word counts. David is standing in front of the nation who knows all of his garbage. The jig is up. And he says, now I can teach you something. And what he teaches them is first how we cover up. He knew that well. David knew what it was like to cover up. Verse 2, uh, the, sec- the last part there, he, he uses a word and he says, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the reason he's able to use that word is because he knows that that spirit is in him. And he was a master of it. So, how do we cover up deceit? And then verse 3 is another way. When you're confronted with the pain of sin, this is the tendency for when I kept silent. Ever since Adam and Eve, the very natural human reaction to being exposed, to being convicted, to being challenged with our junk is not to say, God, you know but to say, I don't know what you're talking about. Hiding is the first instinct. There's something we do to cover ourselves. And David is testifying as to the great folly and misery, and we might use the word insanity of that. Self-protection. That's what deceit is. He's deceiving himself, not just others. That's what that word, in whose spirit there is no deceit, internally deceiving himself. 
The human heart knows two things when it's confronted. Deny, deny, deny. Diminish, diminish, diminish. That's where David took his sin in the beginning. He denies even knowing about this by covering it up with all of these schemes. And then it is our tendency to diminish sin. Sin. If you haven't grown up in a church like this, that word may seem a fright. Those words really aren't used anymore. David uses three here that are just, well, how shameful you Christians are. Sin, transgression, iniquity. Come on. It's 2021. This kind of guilt control over people, surely we're beyond that. I made a mistake. I was weak. I'm broken. That's just how I am. That's the first instinct. Self-protection. But then, verse 2, 3 rather, you get a sense that there's this, not just self-protection, but self-punishment. One of the ways we keep ourselves from God is to take on our sin ourselves. And it's insanity. Arrogant and insane. David says that when I kept silent, everything in me withered. My bones grew weak. And I wasted through groaning. There's another one of those internal words. He groans. Why? Because he's trying to pay for something. And there's nothing people like us love more than to punish ourselves for sin. Oh, I get the, the privy of watching people on the Lord's Supper Day and the frowns well outweigh the smiles. And rather than seeing that Jesus has paid for it, there's an internal beating up that says, I will whip myself. I will be sad that I'm such a failure. That's what David's doing. He gets this news and there's the groaning. This is what happened to me. You think about it. We all have these payment plans. You may not be aware of this in yourself, but there's a reason people act the way they do. We never know what's going on in our souls, but if you pay attention, you'll begin to see it outwardly. There's this emotional payment. That's what he talks about. Groaning and self-loathing. There's no human alive that looks in the mirror and says, you know what? You're such a great person. You're physically fit. You're beautiful. What a charming person you are. They may, but they're deluding themselves. No, most people look in the mirror and say, if they only knew what a failure you are. Then there's the physical realities we have, as a culture, as I said a moment, we've done away with guilt, we've done away with sin, and yet there's a strange thing where self-harm is like fashionable. 
people actually hurt themselves to release, to release. Something internally has gripped me and I've got to release it. There's a reason substance abuse is off the chart. It's not just because people like to get high. It's because they're medicating. We turn to food. A couple fights, guess what? That's when the house is the cleanest. Because that's the way they cover it up. They get the house organized. If I can just get the house and the yard clean, I'll feel better. I'll be relieved, right? Some of us turn, exercise could be part of that too. Social punishment. I'm going to work my soul to the nub. I'm going to prove that I'm worthy. Or I will craft my children in such a way that the world will look upon us and say, wow, amazing. And I'll kill my kids. The point being made here is that we do all cover. It's not a matter of some people do this. I feel bad for them. It is our natural default mode. We will cover our sin and groan. And our bones weaken. My third favorite short story is The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. You can ask me later what numbers one and two is. We're all, we're all the caretaker in The Telltale Heart. It's the story of a young man who sits with an elderly gentleman who has no family, but the elderly gentleman has a dead eye that stays open <laughs> 24-7. And he only can see that eye, and that's meant to be symbolic. The eye, the eye is never off you. God's eye is never off eyes. And he hates that eye so much, even when he cracks open the door at night, the light hits it in such a way that it just unnerves him. All he can see is that disgusting eye. <laughs> so he decides to kill the old man, <laughs> to get rid of him. I just need to get out from under that piercing dead eye. And he buries him under the floor. Because he had no family, people aren't coming around, but eventually the police are wondering why his bills aren't being paid, so they show up. He had scrubbed the floors after burying him underneath the planks, and there's nowhere you can see him. But Poe teaches us such a wonderful lesson about who we are. Suddenly, the young man starts to hear, Could the man be alive knocking on the floor? Does the policeman hear this? I'm, the jig is up. It was his heartbeat. It was the caretaker's heartbeat. And it got louder. And it got louder and louder. So loud that he assumed the officer heard it. Till finally he could take no more of that crashing heartbeat and said, I did it! I confess! He's under the floor just to get rid of the guilt. The point is, we can't escape that. No matter what strategies we come up with. Why? Well, Verse 5, David says something very interesting. At the very end, he says, I acknowledged, I didn't cover, I said I'll confess, and then this last line, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
which sounds very redundant. You forgave the sin of my sin. Huh? He doesn't list an act. You, you forgave my adultery. You forgave my murder. You forgave my lying, deceit, and cover-up. He says, no. What I needed forgiveness for was the iniquity of my sin. How I had twisted sin. Here's his point. David says that our guilt is not measured in what we do, but against whom it's done. So even the least sin that we would you know, rate on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being Hitler, 1 being white lie, tax fraud, whatever, stealing paper clips, says that's not the issue. It's not a scale of what one does, but against whom. Therefore, as Paul so aptly says, all have sinned. All are guilty and fall short of the glory of God. Now that sounds like such bad news, doesn't it? Remember, David here is telling us something about blessedness. And this is what he's discovered. In verse 3, he says, God, your hand was heavy on me. That doesn't sound like a very pleasant prayer. Lord, would you put your hand so heavy on my family? What he's saying is that God loved him so much that he would not relent from this. Okay, point two, and I've got to be quick. How we confess. David discovered cover up bad. Confess good. If God already knows... And God is the one orchestrating this. Why would I not confess? Let's talk about that word for a moment. He says it, verse 5. He quotes himself, I'll confess my trespasses. The word, whether it's in the Hebrew like original or in its Greek version, which you find in the New Testament. Here's the word. It may sound familiar. Homo logain. Right? Same word. Same word. And confess is something often like we did this morning. We, we speak together. But confession is more than just saying the same thing like you mimic. Just say these words. Confess is, is more personal. Confession has to do with, yes, the same word, but it's, it's the image of two parties coming alongside one another. Getting into the other's mind and heart. David is saying that the healthy, blessed life is able to come alongside the one whom he has offended and get into their mind and heart as to how that sin has injured them. There are false ways to confess. I hear them every day, and frankly, I say them every day. See if you've ever heard these before. Well, I'm sorry that what I said upset you. <laughs> now, that sounds like a confession. Well, that's so humble. Thank you for that. I'm sorry what I said upset you. That's not a confession. Or another favorite of mine. Well, if I offended you, I'm sorry. Those are just two ways of saying, I, I have absolutely no time to be interested in you. But I want to get this over with. So I'm going to pretend. Right? That's the way we confess. I, I did it, but... 
he says we come alongside. Notice, notice he says this. He says, um, <clears throat> Then I told you of my sin, and I did not hide, and I said I'll confess. He acknowledges it, and he speaks it. That's what confession looks like. He also takes responsibility for it. Not, I'm sorry if I offended you, but he says, I ask you to forgive me of my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. I read an article this week that there is a haunting, the haunting, repetitive, uh, I don't know what you call it, an ethos, a mood, a, a kind of a false confession that's gripped Americans. And you see it on the news every day, but it's trickled down to every fabric of our life called whataboutism. What aboutism? It's a new religion. What aboutism? Something happens, and the first instinct is, well, what about? <laughs> Just today, go watch the news stations, and you'll see that again. Well, what about when? David runs in the opposite direction and says, that may be true, but I'm going to tell you about me, my sin, my transgression. I can't own them. And then there's this strange. Strange word in verse 9. And I take verses um, 8 and 9 as God speaking to David. Where God says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. My eye upon you. God says, my eye upon you. Not other eyes. My eye upon you. My caring countenance. That's what confession brings is the forging of a recommunion of a relationship with the Almighty. And in verse 9, there's this instruction, don't be like a horse or a mule which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Here's the image. You're riding a horse and the horse wants to go left and the only way to get it where you want to go is to pull the rope and kick it. Ouch! And then the horse begins to move that way again, and you kick it with a spur. Ouch! After about three or four times, the horse begins to get the idea that he's got to go this way, but take the bridle off. Where's he going? Back left. The image is meant to convey there, there's a danger when you confess that you, that you confess with impure motives, and I do that. Which is, I confess now that I'm tasting consequences. But he's describing that confession springs out of love, not out of consequences or regret or I've been caught or it hurts. Tim Keller tells a story as a pastor of a particular couple. The wife always wanted the husband to come to counseling for their marriage. He never would. The whole you know, community knew him as being a very arrogant and very a terse and harsh gentleman. Um, and one day his wife said the magic words to actually motivate him, I'm leaving you. And he said, immediately I got a phone call. Pastor, we need counseling. And when they came together, he asked him, what, what's going on? What, what needs to happen? And she said, if he would just speak this way, help this way, all would be well. He agreed wholeheartedly. <laughs> But after about three months, he realized, you know what, she's not leaving me. And he went right back in 
to all the same patterns. What he's talking about here is that confession is meant to change because it creates this relationship in which you ask the other, what does it cost you? What is my sin cost? What did my burst of anger do to your soul? Help me understand that. That's very different than, well, I'm, I'm sorry I offended you. So David teaches us how we cover up, and then he teaches us how we confess, and then finally, quickly, how God counts. And he uses that word in verse 1 and verse 5. The Lord counts. He counts. He counts. How does the Lord count? Well, in David's story, there was, a, there was another scandal. Nathan comes to David and says, you're the man, you're the sinner. David says, I have sinned against the Lord without interruption, without delay, and without condition. Nathan the prophet, the mouthpiece of God said, the Lord has taken away your sin. <laughs> what? Can you imagine I know what I would have erupted with when I heard those words. Hey, I have sinned against the Lord, and the prophet immediately said, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now, not the consequences. By the way, David's whole family was absolutely destroyed. But the guilt for the sin, the need to pay it off to God, is taken away. It's done. I know my instincts when I hear that. It's like the, the deathbed convertee. Or the, suddenly I'm in parchment and I'm going to meet Jesus? Yeah, right? And what we say in those situations is what those would have said gathered around David and Nathan hearing their conversation. That's not fair! But what David's teaching us with the words of cover that God covers and God is the one that takes away and God is the one that counts is only the offended party is the one that matters. Is the one that outweighs all other voices. The offended can forgive. It says God covers. That's a, that's a word that's drenched in blood in the Old Testament. It means something dies and is put over the thing that is filthy, but that blood cleanses it. That should stir up an image for you because the blood of lambs and goats was a picture, not the fullness, of the pure blood of the Son of God. God has said He's covered that. I may want to put my blood over it and think that through my own personal suffering I can get this sin away. But He says that God doesn't count it against me. That's a good word to know. God, it says, did not count it against me. The neighbor runs over your mailbox. One of you has to die to pay for that mailbox. If you go out and you buy a new mailbox and put it up, you have died. You have absorbed the cost. The alternative is you can sue the person and say, you fix it, but... He dies. He has to die. He has to absorb the cost of that. That's what it means to cover and count. And here's the beauty of the Gospel. Not only has God said, I'll pay for the mailbox, 
but I will count it as if you put the mailbox up. Thank you for the new mailbox. That's the gift of counting. And I say that's important because, well, no matter what God says, there are two louder voices than God in your life and my life. Me and others. And we hear it all the time in our own selves. I know God forgives me, but I can't what? Forgive myself. Or I know God forgets me, but I, I will never be able to attend a church again. I will never be able to go into the grocery store again. Because other voices matter more than the Almighty God that says it's covered, forgiven, taken away. I, I, I worked with a woman in Corinth. She worked at an abortion um, advocacy center. Not for abortion, against it. I don't know what the word is. The medical, uh, it was a, a you know, pregnancy crisis center. Where, where girls and women who most nine times out of ten are being forced by their neck, by their boyfriend to have an abortion. And they don't know it's a place where they're actually going to rescue you from that and show you an ultrasound. And their most effective minister in that was a woman who had had an abortion moons ago. And it took her forever to understand that when God says, I forgive you, you can forgive you. And what others have to say, I can't believe she had an abortion. It doesn't matter. She had realized what this psalm was teaching. That's why David can have a press conference after he's humiliated his family and he's destroyed his country and he's embarrassed himself. He can say, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Why? Because God is able to do something none of us can do. And it is enough. And I will accept that. 1 John says this, 1 John 3.20, write it down, circle it, visit it again. 1 John 3.20, John says, If our heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. He's resonating what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.3, when he understands how the gospel applies to him who's being accused and talked about. Here's what Paul says the gospel was able to do for him. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself because I'm covered and God has counted Jesus' achievements to me. That, friends, is the gospel. Verse 6 reminds us, I don't, we don't have the numbers here, but it says this, Therefore, let the godly pray to you while you may be still found. Here's what I take from that. How often does this happen? Is this a once-in-a-lifetime kind of practice? Well, it says here, May the godly pray to you as long as you may be found. How often is that? What he's teaching us is the blessed life doesn't have to wait for the really big tragic sins because it's measured against God. What he's saying is that you and I have the opportunity as people who have been forced to live east of Eden, out of the garden of God, through confession to daily step into it. Every moment, 
of every day. This is what we described as the blessed life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the majesty of Your Word. It's rich. It's richer than we have time to dig into. But we pray that You would send us toward this, Lord. I, I, Psalm 32 is just a, the song that the prodigal father was able to sing to his returning son. And we pray that You would help us to sing that well too. In Jesus' name, Amen.